0: You a very happy and healthy 2014.
1: Five, four, three, two, one. Happy
2: New Year! You're listening to the Strong Towns podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast this week. I've got our executive director here at Strong Towns, Jim Kuman, on the line with me. Jim, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Good to be back. It was a little warmer last time I was on the
2: podcast. Yeah, no kidding, dude. You and I, <laughs> besides freezing our collective tails off, we're going to chat a little bit this week about looking back at 2013, some of the trips that you and I took together, some of the things that we did And then look a little forward to this year and some of the things that we've got planned for the coming months. That sound good to you?
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. It's been a a jam-packed several months for Strong Towns. Well,
2: now, you're the relatively new guy here. (laughs) You know, how you think your first few months in office have gone, in a sense.
0: Pretty good. I think there was sort of two parts to it. Over the summertime, trying to uh, get a handle on where everything was at, and starting to talk to a lot of people who were calling in to kind of find out if we were available to have you come out speak in the fall. And then there was the fall travel season, and getting all those details put together, and meeting a whole bunch of new people, and trying to. Uh, Get the membership system off the ground. And so uh, that took on a life of its own in uh, the week to week, trying to get everything done and have media interviews and keep ahead of the game. So it was kind of a tale of two different uh, seasons, I guess, uh, for starting six months.
2: Now, you got a little bit of trial by fire because you came out on the road with me four times this year. The first one being the trip that we took together to Wyoming. Let's talk a little bit about that one because I I know we've chatted a little bit about it, but I, I think in retrospect, it was one of those really fascinating experiences. We flew into Jackson Hole and then just headed out across this really vast state and got to see some very interesting things and talk to some people. Wyoming is a very different place, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and uh, luckily, we uh, hit in a very good time of weather. They had just had a massive snowstorm the week before, and what was crazy was that everything was melting. So we had this wonderful sort of rhythm of the week where we would go into a small town, and many of them are sort of time that forgotten uh, some of these places. Some of them have a lot of auto-oriented development around them, but many of them are, are just kind of the way they were. And so... You could kind of go back and forth from one town to the next and down a two-lane road, and two and a half hours later, we'd arrive at the next location. But the landscapes were so gorgeous because the snow was melting, and so it was very odd to see the rivers and the streams full of water in October when normally that part of the country is just dry as a bone. It was a special opportunity to kind of be there with uh, that confluence of Views, I guess, along the way, and we we had plenty of view because I think we spent about fifteen hours in the car. That no we kidding, getting from
2: place to place. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I've got a couple people I want to have on the podcast this year to just talk about the dynamics of that Middle West part of the country. But I think the thing that struck me the most about Wyoming was just the conflict between kind of the inner, I'll call it, pragmatic conservative libertarian kind of thinking. With the, and I'll say it like this, even though this is maybe a little harsher than I mean it, the absolute codependence with big government and government initiatives. It was amazing to me how big of an influence the state has there on local economic development approaches and local economic development priorities. I don't know if that was a shock to you or not. I guess it wasn't something I was completely caught off guard by, but the degree of it and the scale of it was just pretty amazing.
0: It was interesting to watch the individual elected officials and some of the staff members that we met who were either hosting us or folks who just came to a chat and wanted to check things out to watch their struggles some of them really realized that dichotomy and they were trying to both digest our message as well as deal with the reality that they would go back to after they left the room as the forces that were so powerful in their decision-making processes because that's where the money was coming from. And in some parts of the state, those towns were very broke.
1: Right, <laughs> that's the state, There right.
0: was so much money sloshing around That it was hard to stay focused because the reality was that the money was there and they they were going to be able to build that next business park. They were going to be able to build that next massive consolidated school because there was a big check coming from uh, the state capital to take care of that.
2: You really got the sense of the whole boom and bust nature of that West economy.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely embedded in, in everything. If you weren't coming out of a bus, you were going into one and vice versa, or you were scared to death of when it was going to hit, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And right. Even the people who were doing well felt that it wasn't going to last forever, even if it, it just got started.
2: I did feel a little bit enthused or heartened by the fact that most people there seem to get it. I mean, they seemed to want to, in a sense, get off this crazy up-and-down roller coaster kind of thing. But the question was... How do you do it? And how do you do it when the state is kind of pushing you back onto it? Before we move on from Wyoming, Laramie, I just want to remind you of the hilarious time we had going through that one crazy subdivision out by the Super Walmart. (laughs) That was epic. (laughs) I think I did a Sid TV video of the planning fad trifecta where you had the complete street, the trail, the solar panel the wind generation, and then uh, the decorative lighting. It was the planning fad trifecta there all in one spot.
0: Yes, and being able to view the old Walmart from the new Walmart was also pretty hilarious, (laughs) uh, which was also in, in the middle of the trifecta. You actually see the trifecta plus all the Walmarts. Um, And Not to mention the crazy subdivision architectural details, uh, which blew my mind. I thought, having lived in California and lived in a few other places, that have had histories of doing some pretty crazy things in uh, New McMansion subdivisions that by far took the cake. I've seen some great stuff in Vegas, but this didn't hold a candle to what we thought in in Laramie and Laramie. It was funny because we mentioned that later to some of the folks and and they were like, Well yeah uh, sorry you went there. Well
2: terminating the vistas with the back of the Walmart is a pretty standard thing, but then the very inventive use of the fake decorative rock, it took it to a whole nother level.
0: I don't think I've ever seen that many types of decorative rock in one in one <laughs> development. it, it was It was truly stunning. Every time we turned the corner, thinking that they would repeat it, they would ratchet it up another level. Um, Somebody really uh, had a good time one afternoon when they were doing the exterior elevations of those
2: houses. When we got back from Wyoming, we had a short turnaround, and then we headed to the northwest, a place that I had never been. Never been to Washington State until this year. Earlier this year, I went, but this is my first time really covering any significant ground there. We got to speak in, give me the name of the, it's like Waxahachie or something like that. Did I say that right?
0: Yeah, uh, Wenatchee.
2: Wenatchee? Somewhere Wenatchee out.
0: Wenatchee will be near Dallas. Where we're going here in a couple weeks.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Then we headed over to Seattle. I'd never been to Seattle before. It was really kind of neat to experience that and see that and give a nice talk there. And then we headed up across the border and did a couple talks in British Columbia, including a talk in Vancouver. Really great trip, I thought.
0: Yeah, quite amazing and a huge diversity of folks. The reason we are going to Wenatchee was to visit the Washington uh, Infrastructure Assistance Coordinating Council. I believe it was is the acronym. And basically with a group of people getting together, mostly from smaller towns in eastern and central Washington, uh, trying to get infrastructure projects done, their local city county infrastructure projects. There's a meeting of the minds between people who give out grant money and give out loans for those projects and the people who are trying to put the money together in their own town to get the projects done.
2: It was like a step back in time for me to my engineering days. Because I mean, literally, you had the consultants all there trying to get the projects. You had the cities all there trying to get projects and consultants. And then you had... The funding agencies there trying to give out money and find good projects. And it was just like, on paper, it was a Strong Town's dystopian nightmare. <laughs> but they were good people.
0: Crisscrossed with speed dating, which it was quite of a, a speed dating component uh, right. to kind of what was going on there. Right. <laughs> but what was fascinating, though, is, is that you were giving the plenary, and then we had a follow up session. In the afternoon, after the plenary, for people to come and do more Q and A specifically with what they heard, and you you gave the other talk about participatory government and how we need to change our public process outreach systems that we have and that we currently use. The response, I think, was really genuinely, honestly amazed. There was a recognition by so many people that we met individually that they knew that the system that they were caught up in and the event that they were participating in, something was not quite right. And and this was not something that could go on forever. I mean, it was the way that they always did it, but there was this really clear recognition by some folks that they knew something wasn't quite right, but they didn't know what to do about it. Uh, There were still some others, I think, that were really hardcore skeptics and were very protective and to defensive of what we were questioning. And I think it was a very interesting conversation, and there was a lot of feedback after that, positive feedback for the most part, saying, wow, it's really starting to sink in, and I'm really glad that is out there trying to address this issue, because this is such a large ship that has to turn around. I'm in the middle of it. I don't even know where to start thinking about where it should be going.
2: Right. It was very reflective for me of what I experienced back in my engineering days. There was kind of a maybe unspoken truth that we all knew the system was messed up and we all knew that the projects we were doing were idiotic. But there was a sense that we were powerless to change it. And if we didn't do the project, someone else would. There really wasn't a moral issue with like, well, we can take a stand here and not do it and go out of business and everybody around me can find new jobs. Or we just suck it up and do it even though we think it's dumb. As I was giving the talk and then certainly afterwards, you saw the recognition in people's eyes and in the questions that they asked that, you know, okay, we get it. We're kind of stuck in this system. How do we change it? And to me, that was a really powerfully refreshing part of the whole experience of going up there.
0: If we could manufacture an event to reach a group of people like that in every state in the country.
2: That'd I be got to be
0: something we need to focus on for 2014. In our overall plan, we've had some conversations about audiences and who are the audiences that most need to hear the message of strong towns. And, and that proved to me that we've got to go looking for more AICCs across the country because the recognition was there and the willingness and to a certain extent, because it was folks from the grant agencies there who also were very, we had dinner with several of the folks who were part of the grant agencies and they realized that yeah. some of their programs are not really incentivizing the right things. And right. so right. Uh, some of those are, or legislated to be the way they are, and so the staff members don't have the power to just necessarily change them, but they're interested in, in trying to go a different direction because they realize that this the same problems keep coming back, throwing more money at it isn't solving it. we got to have a different approach with, with where the money ends up doing it, so it, it, it's a longer-term fix than every two years' bonding cycle or you know, however else the political cycle works that, that funds these programs. So, to me, I really feel like, and we had several people who ended up joining the organization in the coming weeks. We had just launched our membership program, and I've heard from all three of those groups of people, the consultants, folks from small towns who were trying to do projects, as well as folks in the grant agencies who really want to be involved with with our organization and figure out a way to make it happen. So, our return on investment, at least for across a very large diversity of different groups of people that we spend time in front of, of that really I think help them and I think hopefully it'll be more people who will want to continue on the path with us trying to figure out what to do because there's a long journey there of thinking <laughs> there was only the opening forward to try to figuring out how to take the complex set of things that they're encountering and unwind them all
2: right I don't want to skip over too many things but um, we should just talk briefly about Vancouver to me in North America there's a handful of cities that are just anomalies New York City is one, and I laugh all the time when the advocates from New York City start saying, well, in New York City, we this and that, because I'm like, dude, there's no place in this country like New York City. With a possible exception, the other two anomalies that I've been to would be San Francisco and Portland as two places that I think are just very unlike any other kind of standard city or standard approach in North America. Vancouver has to join that list for me now, too. What a rush.
0: It was definitely a a different look on a place that we thought we kind of knew. I had not been to Vancouver either, and... I was very excited to, to look at what it was like on the ground for everything I'd heard about and years and years and years and magazine cover stories talking about various aspects of what was going on. We were very fortunate to have two fantastic guides
1: uh, okay. to take us
0: into the underbelly of Vancouver and, and show us the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is probably not what uh, everybody gets a chance to see when they go there uh, to really understand not only the history but the political inner workings behind some of the decisions that were made over the last 30 or 40 years that made Vancouver what it is today and uh, where it's going.
2: That was a fantastic curbside chat. And I have to admit, I was a little nervous simply because you know, I I walk into a place and I'll look around and I'll be like, okay, these are my people and and I know them and I I know that what I'm going to say is going to resonate. But there was a lot of walking through Vancouver where there was a big part of me saying what do I have to teach these people? These guys, (laughs) you know, are doing so many things right. So many things that are really rule breaking in terms of conventional wisdom. And it's turning out so well. What in the world do I have to tell these people? Yet it was one of the most successful chats of the year. They were really into it and asked great questions. And I I think we helped them out.
0: The crazy part about Vancouver is, and I think the, the whole trip, the Couple days. I spent a few days extra in Vancouver and see a few more neighborhoods and a few other places, which was also good to see because those places were neighborhoods that are a little bit further into the city and a little bit more typical of a typical neighborhood. If you go to the downtown, the west end, the places that get put in the magazines, they are indicative of Vancouver thinking of the Vancouverization that we hear about in other cities now, they are they're copying those types of techniques. But Faith and I just rode a bus out to a couple other neighborhoods, and the bus system on a Saturday morning was, like, really packed, and uh, yeah, lots yeah. of people were riding it, and you kind of got to see a little bit on the inside of what it is to, like, to live there for a day or two. And uh, there are some really cool things going on in just the regular neighborhoods, and so to me, when we were walking along the harbor front there with Neil and looking at the development pattern and some of the, not as, uh, I think that the towers along the waterfront there are very really urbanistically functional, but we were having a discussion as we were walking that they, they lack a little soul, and that's maybe one of the knocks on Vancouver to a certain extent in, in the way that they've developed some of their larger buildings. But aside from that, we were talking about where we had been the night before, which was in sure. Surrey, and how the machine of Vancouver as a wealth generator was so powerful that it's it not only... Sometimes we talk about how the downtowns can reciprocate or their value spills onto adjacent neighborhoods to downtown because the amenity and the public spaces and so forth, the things that, that create the value... Are uh, so strong there that being just close to them is important right. uh, Vancouver is an entire municipality does that for an entire region right. um, and it, because it is Vancouver is so uniformly well done and that Surrey town that's you know essentially one town over a town in between Surrey and Vancouver has houses that maybe around here in Minnesota would go for One or two, maybe $300,000 that are anywhere between 20 and 40 years old, go for three-quarters of a million dollars in money. And there's nothing inherently valuable about the building. It's just the land that they're on.
2: It's a proximity to Vancouver.
0: Yeah. It was hard to think about, wow, a place is so incredible in its wealth creation that it can send that wealth many miles over to places that otherwise, if you just drove down that street with a blindfold on before you got there and they just took it off and say, you're in Surrey and you looked around, you wouldn't necessarily say that you were looking in front of a million dollars house.
2: Totally. Actually, if you remember, I caught a little catnap in the back seat and had that exact reaction. I woke up and I'm like, seriously? <laughs> <laughs>
0: you were sleeping we had a long drive in from Seattle. That oh, it happened. did, it did. You woke up and you're like, where are we? And we're, like, yeah. we're in Syria. And he's like,
2: mm. <laughs> Well, and for anybody doing that trip, crossing the border into Canada, not a big deal. Crossing the border back into the U.S. will make you late for your airplane. I had just like the horrid experience of sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting for an hour and a half just waiting for my turn to go through. And there wasn't, like, a hold-up or anything. It was just that the border was so darn slow, so.
0: on well, multiple border crossing trips to Canada this year, which I've... Yeah, I did three. trip near Canada. Yeah, I I remember that type of thing. But it was much, much easier to get into Canada than it was to get out of here.
2: Yeah, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I should maybe tell the quick story about going in in Niagara where I gave a talk earlier this year and I was, they told me to take the shuttle from the airport. So I got in the airport shuttle. I was really tired. I was sitting in the back of the shuttle and I was sleeping, you know, I was taking a little break. All of a sudden we're at the border crossing and the guy sticks his head in the window and says, you know, passport. And I'm like, okay, here it is. And then he asked some very basic questions and I'm not totally with it at this point. But, you know, I also didn't know any of these details. He said, well, where are you going? And I said, well, Piedmont County or not Piedmont County, Niagara. I can't remember what the name of this county is, but I I knew the name of that. And he's like, no crap. You know, that's where we are at. So tell me something I don't know. He's like, well, what are you doing? And I'm speaking at this conference. Well, what's the name of the conference? Well, I I don't know. (laughs) Well, who's sponsoring you? I, I don't know. Are you getting paid to do this? Yeah. Well, who's paying you? I said, you know, I, I I don't know. Someone else takes care of that stuff. (laughs) I can tell you what I'm talking about, but I, (laughs) I don't know any of those details. So he kindly asked us to step out, and I had to go stand in another long line. And by the time I got to the front of that, I had, I was smart enough to have downloaded all the details from our website and actually was able to coherently answer the questions then. That's the only time I've had trouble getting into Canada. Usually, the Canadians are pretty friendly.
0: Yeah, well, well, I would suggest you take a bus on the way back. Since you had taken a rental car, we took a nice bus that had about six people in it from uh, the Amtrak bus that goes from Vancouver back to Seattle. Even though we had to unload a bus, unload all of our gear off the bottom of the bus, take it inside, walk it through security, walk it back out. We were out of there in less than 20 minutes, so I guess that's the secret. Uh, uh, You're uh, trying to get back into the U.S. on the West Coast. (laughs)
2: Let's switch to the next trip now, Wisconsin. Which I have to say, and no offense to anybody else that I've been to this year, but we had what was my favorite curbside chat of the year in Milwaukee. And it was my favorite because at the end, basically we got done with the presentation and we're kind of getting started with the Q&A and another class showed up. And yeah, said, "Well, to bust
0: into the back of the hall Yeah. yeah. had to get out. Because the, the student group that had reserved the, the place was, I was sitting out in the hallway and they're like, "Have uh, you guys getting out of here? And I'm like, um, right. maybe, who are right, you? Right, right.
2: <laughs> we didn't know that there was another group coming in after us. So we wound up moving the Q&A part of it down to the student lounge. And we sat around on couches for over an hour and just had a really intimate friendly conversation that involved far more than just me, which is why I kind of liked it. We had this just really good back and forth ongoing conversation. And that was my favorite curbside chat experience of the year.
0: Yeah. There was at least 25 people or so that stayed doing a little bit by the end, but that was mostly because if you'd been there from the start, it was, we were approaching hour number three uh, right. in, <laughs> right. in, the, in the process. It was really interesting cause I think, many of the folks there were asking the really hard questions, not of you, but of of the thought of how do we change the way we're, we're doing things and how does this really play out. They were giving specific examples of things that someone was doing in the region or doing in the town that was heading in the strong town's direction and how it needed been squashed or somebody had overrun it or politically sidetracked it and the frustrations from that experience, which kind of makes you a little gun shy to uh, try again, because you know obviously the data and, and good thinking isn't always what trumps our decision-making processes in our governmental agencies. It was really, a really honest conversation because these are people who are really trying hard to figure out how to move in this direction, and uh, they were wondering how you get past uh, the stumbling blocks that typically show up when you try to do that.
2: One of the refreshing things about it to me was that you had a really good mix of professionals and Mm -hmm. public officials. So you had a demographic that was in the game, and then you had this student demographic that was there and was fairly decently represented too. So you had... A group, and I won't call them idealistic as much as say they're not burdened with 10 years of doing things the the bad, you know, right. Like, this is how it's done, people. They don't have any of those hangups. And so it was kind of refreshing to just mix the drink and then watch it, you know, watch it be consumed (laughs) because these guys had to talk to each other. That was the cool part to me.
0: Speaking of the Kool-Aid, you pretty much put an IV in the student set. After we went and saw it, the engineering school. back and Yeah. At, uh, Utah, Madison.
2: <laughs> we stopped at the pimped out roundabout. That got me really kind of upset. And so I changed my presentation instead of talking to have
0: a no better way. <laughs>
2: yeah. So my presentation, I changed it and it was called Don't Be Stupid. Yeah, I talked right to those engineering students. That was a lot of fun, too.
0: We have to set the stage here for the listeners, because uh, we're driving <laughs> along back from Milwaukee, where we had stayed the night before, and we had a noontime brown bag presentation in front of the student chapter of the ITE at, at Madison. So we're about 15 minutes outside of Madison, and we need to get a Mountain Dew, of course. That's yeah, a, yeah, we got to stop,
2: stop and get a do, right.
0: So we were like, this is the last place that will probably be easy to get in and out of. It's not some massive strode right off the highway. where We're have to wait 16 hours at, at you know 14 sets of lights to get back on the road. So we, we see this one gas station essentially off the side of the road. And so we're like, okay, let's, let's, let's stop here. So we we get off the, the freeway, except that as I'm driving, I'm immediately uh, encountered With not one, but two roundabouts in the middle of essentially cornfields. And we're like, where are we?
2: Right. The roundabout itself, I'm embracing the function of the roundabout. But the thing that was bizarre to me is that it was the Wisconsin DOT standard plate for the pimped out roundabout with the, you know, 12 foot pedestrian trails along both sides, around the whole thing, back and forth. It had the decorative lighting. It had the intense landscaping. The crazy thing was that the trail just ended. I mean, if you were going to say we're going to go on this trail on the pimped out roundabout, you would literally start from one roundabout, walk to the other one, go around that roundabout and then walk back to the other one and go around it. It didn't go to anything like it didn't end up at a city or I mean, I guess you could go to the gas station, you know, and you could go from the gas station to the interchange and back to the gas station again Man, it was. The
0: environment was very telling. uh, The fact that while we were sitting there videotaping, because Chuck got so disturbed that he had to whip out his camera and start videoing this whole thing. He couldn't believe what his eyes were seeing. The large, oversized, farm-implement truck pulls around through the roundabout while we're sitting there. And we're like, wait a second. (laughs) That's not the kind of... We're not talking about a small vehicle. We're talking about a vehicle that actually over overtakes both lanes on two-lane road, which is all there was leading up into this roundabout. It was a two-lane road. And the cool and part like, of it... Okay, something yeah. does not belong here.
2: The cool part of it is that they're driving the combine like at rural road yeah, speeds indeed. without slowing down through this pimped-out roundabout. Yeah, it was um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: It also funny, too, because minutes later, it was, I couldn't believe this. We were only there like 15 minutes, maybe. Then the fire truck just...
2: Yeah, yeah. peeled through, through.
0: From the other direction.
2: Yeah. Not they with lights like, on you know, or anything. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. He didn't even really slow down. out. Like right. He, the roundabout was so large for, you know, and the fact that there was no traffic in it because there was no one there. Right. Uh, he pretty much just kind of tapped on the brakes and just swung around this thing and kept going. He was trying to get on the freeway. So he had to go through not one but two roundabouts on that side yeah. of the interchange.
2: The morning breakfast special at Denny's was about to expire. So they were um, in a hurry. Well, they didn't didn't have the sirens on, I don't think. I don't think it was a fire. I think that was the thing about this one is that the geometries were just so messed up. Anyway, let's switch to Mississippi. We went down to Mississippi for a week. And man, there's some trips. Idaho this year was that way with John Reuter. But Mississippi was also. Some trips where the host of the trip just makes the trip. And Joe and Jeremy, these two guys that brought us around Mississippi, were were not only gracious hosts and did a great job of getting us in front of a, a lot of good groups of people, but man, they were hilarious. I couldn't have enjoyed myself more
0: we were quite the foursome. I think the people by the end of the week when we showed up in the towns on Thursday must have, must have think that we were like the four musketeers or something because, <laughs> uh, in three days we generated enough inside jokes after listening to Chuck repeat himself, uh, for a few days. Exactly. Uh, and, and then, uh, then, the, I think for them, they were really interested in the reaction. And I think that evolved over the course of the week because, then also, after they'd heard it five times, could begin to anticipate the questions and so forth, as you have to giving it hundreds of times now. To watch the evolution, I think, was fun because they got a real dose of it, having to see eight different versions. We basically did a 2 one version for the front half of the week for the first two chats, and then we had two, two days the second half of the week. And so we ended up realizing on the, the night middle night of the of the week that we needed to change up and, and focus in on your message and your background and because we were really specifically talking to uh, mostly staff and elected officials on the two days and right, I right. think that was for me one of the best versions uh, where there's many different incarnations I've seen now of, of the curbside chat, some of which in real time this fall, we just trying to be sensitive to the audience, but I think it goes back to the authenticity of the message. Is it, this thought process is born out of real life experience and not some idealistic thing that you dreamed up one day? It's, it's a yeah, yeah. culmination of of experiences, which are then shared by the people in the audience. And I think their reaction. I was really interested to see. I knew what my reaction was, and I already knew kind of what was coming, but. next car ride in between two day towns they were like wow that was really different
2: (laughs) yeah 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 I was a little didn't know what to expect going in again Mississippi I had been to a couple times but mostly just in and out and I really hadn't gotten a deep cultural immersion and Mississippi is a little bit of a different place. I mean, it's not Minnesota. <laughs> it's the other end of the river, but I was very pleasantly surprised. I can't say I was shocked, but I was, it was very pleasant to meet the people. I, I really enjoyed it. We, for the most part, had very engaging groups. And yeah, I think they connected with the personal message and were able to kind of make it their own. I want to bring up one place that we stopped just because it was such an anomaly. And such a cool place. And that is Water Valley on paper. And just certainly if you just gave it a drive through, you would say nothing special. You know, this is just like every other place. But as soon as you get out and start interacting with the people, start interacting with the culture there, start going into some of the the shops and seeing what's going on. This is one of the most dynamic small towns I've ever been in.
0: It was uh, truly amazing. I think the biggest part that was so we've heard stories; um, they've been covered a little bit in media before, and so we've been, been sent that as uh, here's an introduction to Water Valley. And so we're like, okay, well, it sounds kind of interesting. These are some interesting characters, at the very least, from these media reports, and. Uh, which definitely turned out to be true, which made the, the whole experience that much more enjoyable because they, they see themselves as their their own anomaly within their region, which I think is, is to a certain extent, a, a, a self-sort. Uh, there's some folks, I think, who end up in Water Valley, uh, not only from around Mississippi, but actually from around the world, who came there because they realized there's was a little bit different of a vibe. But to me, I think like the quintessential... Moments of being in in Water Valley uh, was uh, talking to the the gentleman who had helped open the uh, grocery store slash coffee shop slash general store slash cafe where half the town seems to eat at noon on a on a weekday.
1: Yeah, it's the third and, place. Um,
0: yeah. He was taking a time out. Uh, he was dressed in essentially Carhartts. And, you know, a, a pretty dirty t-shirt. He had just purchased the building at the other end of the block. The, their downtown's maybe three or four blocks, not very big. And there were still some buildings on that stretch which were either burned out or been vacant for a very long time and in disrepair. He stopped over to get a sandwich at his shop and he talked to us while we were there eating at the cafe. He was in the middle of literally dragging out the rubble uh, from this Basically, set of three buildings which had a huge fire in it. The roof had completely collapsed and it collapsed through the the second floor onto the first floor and it was just a ginormous mess. I mean, I have those photos and we should probably post a couple of those with the podcast. It'd be kind of fun. But he's like, Yeah, you know, uh, we closed the deal on Thursday and this was like Tuesday or Wednesday we were there. So, like, four days later, he was in there with laborers and he was the foreman essentially pulling out just. Dumpster after dumpster of rubble and saying, well, better get this place fixed up. You know, right. it's mine now. There was no delay. It was now like, well, we should think about what we're going to do now, and we should hire a construction crew. And no, no, this, this is just grab the guys you knew and, and get in there and start fixing the place up immediately, incrementally. And you make it get the first building back into shape where it can be used for something.
2: What was most powerful to me about that was that it was clear that it was a labor of love. Mm. This was a place that had said, this is an old historic building. It's important to us. I don't care if, you know, some professional is going to come in and look at it and say, well, you'd be better off ripping that down and building something new. To hell with that we're going to fix this thing up. And the interesting thing is that you could see where they had done that in other places as well. And the buildings were just gorgeous. The brewery we got the tour of that co-op slash everything else that you talked about was the same kind of thing. These were places that in other cities, people abandon and walk away from. And here in water Valley, that's what they embraced. It was a beautiful vibe.
0: It was really amazing. I think the, momentum that has begun there has really taken hold that is their identity now that it's coalesced around the fact that if you want to show up here and do something don't just talk do something if you're not doing something then you're all bluster and I I think because you you don't quite fit in with what's what's going on because everyone there was doing something they were working hard and they were making a go at when we stayed at a breakfast that we we're probably like the third or fourth people to stay there, I think. They so just opened the place. Yeah. And it was just like place was, was an old farmhouse essentially. I mean it was what it looked like. And the lady had just painstakingly renovated each room one at a time and it wasn't all done yet even. I think the room I had, so they'd do some, some painting of some some of the wood and so forth. But it was beautiful. Just I gorgeous. really didn't notice it. Yeah, just gorgeous. Um, and that was really amazing because they're like, well, good enough. Let's get it going and let's get people in here and let's make sure that there was no place to stay in Water Valley. And so there was no hotels. It's place had kind of been left behind for a long time. You have to drive 30 miles to get to another hotel. And so having a few few places, a few rooms for, for visitors to stay in was a big thing for this place but it was not your standard oh we need to few hotel rooms let's go get some drywall out and build us a shack someplace that we can do it let's take what we have and make it work right now
2: before we move on to what's going to come up this year 2014 i want to just briefly mention three trips that i took on my own in the same kind of mm-hmm. end of the year kind of deal williamsport pennsylvania probably the best organized chat that I've I've ever done or ever been to. What a fantastic place. I love Pennsylvania. Boy, I found the cities there to be just inspiring and delightful. I'm really, really in love with Pennsylvania. And I've gotten to go there, I think, three times this year. What a fantastic place. And I really want to go back. Williamsport, one of those places, like the other cities in Pennsylvania, has amazing bones, has the natural gas... Kind of a boom going on right now, and really trying to figure out how to not continue making the mistakes that I think they've made for quite a number of years. They built one of the things that was just absurd. There is they built this coals right on the edge of their downtown. This beautiful downtown, this great hotel I stayed in, really fantastic place. And you look down the street and you get the back of the coals facing you, and it's just like ah, that's a mistake that will not be corrected for a long time. But for the most part, things were really nice there, and they were doing a lot of great things, and they had a a university that was very involved and very active, and I have high hopes for Williamsport. I also did a trip to Ohio and West Virginia, and it was my second time, or my third time in Ohio, but my second time in Dayton, and got to speak to a group of real intense public officials. Boy, the people that put this together really got some high-powered people in one place at one time. And that was a chat that was just phenomenal. And I thought we had great participation, great questions. Uh, Went down to Huntington, West Virginia the next day and had, if you listen to the podcast last week, you heard the kind of bizarro interview I had in Huntington. I'm going to do a little bit of writing on the blog about Huntington. And I I think we're going to try to interview some more people from there too, because I just loved Huntington. I thought this is a fantastic place, but wow. One of those places again, that on paper or in talking to, you know, a couple of the public officials, you would just avoid like the plague. But man, as soon as you scratch the surface, just a wonderful, fantastic place with a ton of depth. Finally, Erie and Buffalo. I was in, I actually gave a talk in Niagara, again, with a a really well-organized group of public officials as part of a speaker series they had. And that was a standing room only chat with a couple hundred people. It was really a a very well-attended type of deal. But I was able to, the night before, meet with some of the CNU people that are getting ready for the upcoming Congress in Buffalo. And I have to say, you know, you and I, Jim, are planning to be there, no doubt, but if you're on the fence about whether to go to Buffalo or not, go. Buffalo is a not only a great town, but the committee there that's putting this stuff together has got some really cool ideas. They've got some really good stuff. This is going to be an innovative Congress. And, man, I wouldn't want to miss it.
0: They're more or less trying to break the mold. Uh, yeah. I know the folks in Dallas have been working with them because we're going to be heading off there pretty soon as well. There's a pretty pretty strong movement at hand to shake up um, what, uh, what has been known in the past as the model, as the, the speaker format, as so many different things that's kind of been the, the normal fare because uh, so I love the, the theme of the conference uh, focused around resiliency. and uh, That obviously fits so well with our message. We're hoping to be able to do some additional outreach with some of the folks that we met One Chuck in Buffalo. When we return in the summertime, so uh, stay tuned for for information on that. It's a great confluence of everyone who's there is so excited. I think that's probably. It's funny what you felt. I just talked on the phone with some of these folks ahead of time and could feel this excitement about not just about CNU, really more just the people in, in the region really caring about trying to do something different than what they've seen. Maybe the group of people we've talked to because they're, they're the go-getters, like, or maybe they're particularly zealous in their passion for the city and in, in, in the region, but you don't get that everywhere, I think, that we've, we've encountered. And, and so that was really what stuck out. And so it makes you want to see what they're going to be up to because that's people who have that type of passion usually are really working hard to make something come together for the folks they're inviting to town.
2: Well, and I floated the idea of having a little Strong Towns boot camp type training event uh, somewhere around CNU, either right before or right after. And, man, there was a ton of enthusiasm for that. So if you guys want to see a Strong Towns training session, Jim Kuhnman, J K U M O N. -N 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 (laughs) <laughs> at strongtowns.org. Bother him. He's the guy that will make it logistically happen. I'll be there. I'll show up. But you got to get on his case. So hopefully we can happen. We might invite
0: some of our friends as well oh, yeah. to, uh, to carry on a bit with the sessions. I had actually a fantastic idea last night, which I'll have to tell you about. It's maybe a fun addition fun activity addition to a feature boot camp okay Maybe we will we will get it together and unveil it in Buffalo that would be a fun evening game I think perhaps with a few beverages
2: Erie just want to say one quick thing about Erie because what a rush I drove there in a snowstorm and my GPS said it should take like an hour and a half and it took me almost four they live in a crazy world with that lake effect snow because it's literally like one minute it's perfectly clear. And then you drive and the next minute you're in a blizzard. And it just is like a wall that you go into. That was my third trip to Pennsylvania this year. And man, what a fantastic city. I mean, what a city that really has everything. Literally, if they just kind of reoriented their energy from this horizontal expansion out on the edge Looking at the great neighborhoods that they've got, this is one of the winning places. On the Amtrak, on the lake, great bones, beautiful square with the great public buildings. It literally has everything. It's just a great little city. So I'm high on Erie as well. Let's switch to what's coming up. I know we're kind of running out of time, but I want to just chat a little bit about how the membership thing is going and where we're going with that in the early months this year
0: things are going really well. We launched the program on the 16th of October, and it was a really crazy time, right in between the two week-long trips that we were doing and the West Coast into Wyoming, but I stayed pretty busy that week As after we launched on on the Wednesday to take in the overwhelming amount of response that we got to it. Yeah, it, it was, and it was we,
2: pretty spectacular.
0: it's been really amazing. I'll give you the, the overview, and then uh, the members uh, will be getting something in the next couple days to get all the details about what's been going on with uh, who signed up and how, but we just hit the 200-member mark, actually, so we're we're pushing to get to 250 here before the end of, of January, and we have a, a special, those of you listening here to the podcast, we're going to offer a special extinction. Uh, I'll get back to that in a second. What I think was really amazing and, and really Within the first two weeks, we crunched the numbers. Uh, Andrew saying we have to give a shout-out to Andrew uh, yeah. because the membership system would not have happened, at least the part which everyone actually signed up and pays, would not have happened without Andrew's programming wizardry. And so we appreciate everything he's done to help get that off the ground amongst other contributions to Strong Towns he's made in, in the last year. We're looking forward to his help as we continue to develop the platform. But as we went through and crunched the numbers, in the first basically 100 folks that we got. We had folks from 38 different states and several foreign countries, and it was just, wow, out of 100 people to yeah. have yeah. 38 different states of people, yeah. it was just an incredible diversity in such a small set.
2: That really affected me, too, because we have a message here that is kind of born out of my experiences in a small town in Midwestern state in Minnesota. And as we traveled around the country and gotten to see other places, the question's always been to me, how well does this resonate with other folks and with other people and their experiences? And, you know, we've found again and again and again that the homogeneity of this approach is really everywhere. One of the things that I was doing in the early days was just scrolling down and looking at the states and just thinking, wow, I am amazed at the penetration of this message and how people from all over are finding inspiration with it and then stepping up to be part of what we're doing. I was just blown away.
0: Yeah, it was really encouraging because we we spent a lot of time over the summer and into the early fall sort of tinkering around with what would be the response and and what would be the impact of where that would help us as an organization and what different levels should we create in order to best reflect, engage, you know, the level of support that that we have out there. We always knew from... Every month and year as our, as our website hits began to go up, and we could see some level of spread on the, on the Strong Towns network. We, you know, we, we had about five 600 people on the network when we launched the membership system, so we could you know, scroll through that database of folks and see where people had signed up over the past 8, 10 months. But for people to put their money, wow, <laughs> whatever their passion is, and to be able to support us, we were really glad not to see 100 people from Minnesota. I guess let's put it way. Right,
2: right. Yeah, although i had like 100 people from Minnesota. It was cool to see that spread.
0: we'll, we'll take another 100 from Minnesota for right.
2: sure. Membership, our concept of it, as we started talking about it last summer, one of the things that we insisted on and our, our board insisted on too was that membership was a two-way arrangement. And my email can attest to you know how overwhelmed we've been with feedback and the number of people that want to engage with us you know, while we didn't want to have a price for entry, I mean, we still have the Strong Towns network is free. The blog is free. The podcast is free. You know, all this is available for everybody to use and copy and engage in. We did want to have a way, you know, for people to kind of self-identify as being the most passionate about what we're doing. The $25 fee for the basic membership We want to make sure we had something that was very low so that anybody could get into it. But the idea here now is that as we start 2014, we're going to do some intense engagement with these members. I've got on my calendar here of things to do, lining up webinars and conversations and breakout meetings and surveys. And I mean, I got a whole list of things that we're now going to engage pretty deeply with, with these members. That's kind of the way this thing is set up, right?
0: Indeed, and I think that we have about 10 states left on the list where we haven't actually done a, a public curbside chat in, and I think many of those places have shown up so far in the membership system, and, and that's really what we want to make sure we can help do is we need to find more Georgia's people who can carry the message and be the standard bearers of of making this message appropriate and very especially honest in the region of the country that they're from. And so this allows us to both build the resources through the membership system and and the money that that will
1: generate in order
0: for us to be able to continue to work on those resources. The fact of the matter for us as an organization right now is that our, our speaking, when Chuck goes around and speaks, that's basically funding the organization and that's nice but that's that's also waiting for the phone to ring (laughs) (laughs) to a certain extent in order for making sure we don't want to leave this message up to a a game of chance of uh, if someone feels passionate enough to raise some money and and bring Chuck out uh, in order for us to keep this movement going and so what the membership system is hoping to do long term over the next several years being able to grow it incrementally and in a way that we can maintain and that hopefully we're creating a uh, that reciprocal relationship so people will continue to re-up their membership every year is that we can get the projects done that we've been wanting to get done, the mobility reports, the future studies and reports about land use and economic development. Uh, those things can't happen if we have to travel every week in order to make sure that we can at least keep a paycheck and keep the lights on. It's very difficult to squeeze all that in with the travel schedule that we have to undertake in order to, to make the revenue. So uh, that's the reality of what's behind the scenes of, of building a strong town organization with the same principles we have for our towns themselves. We don't want transfer payments, which would be like grants. We like those. Those are great for pilots. Those are great for capacity building, but it's not great. for making sure that this message can continue for the next several years and, and be in a place that we can grow. Maybe we can talk a little bit about, oh, before we do that, yeah, yeah. I, I need to mention the deal. So those of you may have gotten emails, seen on the blog that uh, we have what was called the Founders Circle, which is anyone who joined at the advocate level, which is the $75 level, by the end of 2013 would be forever enshrined in our Founders Circle as a recognition and thanks for people who supported us as a member very early on in the first several months of, of launching a membership system. For those of you listening to the podcast today, we are going to extend that founder Circle offer. Uh, if you hadn't had a chance, we sent a few reminder emails at the end of the year, but obviously over the holidays, many of us had not plugged. If you got back on Monday morning here this week and decided to you didn't actually get through the rest of your inbox that you maybe hadn't gotten to since the start of the year and found that message and said, ooh, whoops, uh, didn't get there in time by December 31st, we're going to extend that a week from... The publishing of this podcast, which is the date for getting it in by is January 23rd. So if you can get in your membership at a $75 dollar level or higher, you will join that fantastic club of people who uh, were here at the very, very beginning of our movement uh, turning in from a blog to a real long-standing organization that can really make things happen across the country so that's what we're doing we'll put that information up on uh, along with the podcast and uh, with a link to joining if this perhaps is your first podcast listening to we will put it all up there so you can find it and really hope you will check out the benefits in our four different membership levels and find out which one is best for you
2: a couple things real quick before we go i think you should mention the september deal just Ooh, so that yeah. people you know start to get that on their calendar. I know we don't have all the details worked out yet, but I think we got a date and a plan. We're getting
0: very close to a date. We're down to two weekends, so I'm looking at the middle weekends in September 2014 for our first National Strong Towns Gathering. We're not calling it a conference because everyone goes to conferences, and we don't think this is really going to be a conference in the perspective that we're not going to be. One thing we're for sure not going to be doing is sitting around in a dark room watching PowerPoints for eight
2: hours. Amen, baby. we're definitely
0: not going to be doing that.
2: Amen. No, we're not doing and, that. I had one request. If we're going to do this national gathering if we're going to have any like conversations, I want to have one where everybody has to get up and talk about the project they screwed up and what they learned from it. That was the one thing that I requested. Like, let's have a session where you give five minutes, you get to stand up. I want to say, you know, here's what I worked on. Here's what didn't work. Here's where I went wrong. And here's what I learned. Just that alone would make it the best thing worth going to, you know?
0: It'd be great if we could have a little wall too, like maybe outside, outside the room we're all meeting in. Yeah, and we can put all those ideas, write them down, and put them on the wall. Yeah, and and be able to basically archive that for spreading around as well for so the folks who will be able to come uh, to be able to share well, that. I uh, might need my process.
2: I might need my own wall because I've done a lot of <laughs> dumb things. <laughs>
0: we can find a corner for you to monopolize that. Yeah.
2: Okay. Second thing I wanted you to bring up. I put together an outline, a proposal, essentially, for updating the curbside chat, taking the curbside chat to the next level. We're going to kind of take it out of our website and create a totally different space for it where we would have not the long form videos, but short video segments going over the chat, update the booklet, and then put together essentially a chat template so that people could take and customize it for themselves and give their own curbside chats around the country. Where are we at with this?
0: Well, we were very fortunate to talk to several folks who helped us get the funding off the ground for the first phase of of this project and Chuck has outlined the, the three major points of what we need to do. The curbside chat has evolved in three years and I actually was asking Chuck recently if we could get a, uh, a little lineup. I, I was kind of curious to see what the slide decks looked like from three years ago at two years ago and a year, year ago today and see the evolution of the message and the, the tweaking and the, and the, the, the maturation of, of what's, what we've talked about. And it's not wildly different. The main idea is still the same, but I think we've focused a little bit more on uh, some other items that maybe weren't in view uh, when, when this first started a few years ago. So the Cripside Chat was published, the booklet itself, the, the online companion, that was a year and a half ago, was that late 2011?
2: Wow, I, I think it was actually October of 2011. Yeah, so it's so, a couple of years old now. And that just shows you how much it has changed. I mean, it really has evolved a lot.
0: One of the other major breakthroughs that happened this fall, which I was lucky enough to witness, was we had just published the Neighborhood's First Report, which was uh, an outgrowth of our project, the Better Bayer Project, in, uh, here in Minnesota, in Chuck's hometown, and looking at how we can look forward. And I think that, that's one of the biggest changes in the curbside chat that we've been able to evolve to is to say, hey, things are a little rough, and we don't know how this transition is going to work to from where we've been at in the, in the Ponzi scheme. To a different mode, which we don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but there are things we can try and things we can do in the meantime in order to improve our places. I think that has really changed the overall trajectory, sending people forth uh, from the curbside chat and in, in a a, wow, what a, let's look at the possibilities type of manner. And so we want to reflect that in the booklet. We were basically given a challenge uh, that week. Uh, it's kind of funny how all these things sort of just happened. It's this was a really plan. We were sitting down with our good friend, John Reuter, who uh, drove over to meet us and, and hang out with us for, for an evening. And he said, you know what would be really great? I work with all these people across the political spectrum in Idaho, and I would love to be able to send them components of the curbside chat. But the problem is it's just too dang long. And, and you have to you know go to minute 28 of a 90-minute presentation if you had a video of even the whole curbside chat in order to show somebody a couple-minute clip of, of what you know what particular item or idea that he wanted to share. And he's like, could you just make 10 three-minute clips that boil down to the, the, the most essence of, of the curbside chat? Messages that that are you know kind of a series of different pieces that make up the curbside chat. So that was kind of throwing down the gauntlet because they we're like, wow, we'd have to cut it by two thirds in terms of total length, and really every word, every second would count in in that kind of format. And so I think that's a challenge we've taken up in this Redux, the next generation of the curbside chat, as we're right. calling it.
2: Well, and I also think too, you know, just watching what George did, <laughs> you know, our George, who you know, has no training in engineering, no training in planning, not a public speaker, But, you know, asked for our slide deck and took it and customized it to his community and then went and gave the presentation to his city council. And it was fantastic. Inspired by that, I really want to try to open source this thing as much as we can so that we can create all those Georges out there and give them the tools so they can evangelize themselves, you know, go into their communities, their groups around their cities and and make this happen. I know that I estimated the time and effort it would take at around fifty thousand dollars worth of cost. I think we've raised like thirteen thousand to this project so far, so That's it. we got to start and we're going to get started here shortly. But we've got a ways to go. So if people are interested in supporting this, again, they get a hold of you.
0: Yeah. And we'll get some information out here over the next couple of weeks uh, to kind of kick off. This is, a, this is the, the the early campaign announcement, and that's what we'll be doing here. Some people have contacted us this fall saying, hey, you know, I signed up for X-level membership, but I really wanted to give more. And I was like, great, fantastic. If you need to make the write-off for the end of the year, we can help you. But here's why we did this. Membership is really helping to make sure the core of the organization maintains itself moving forward. It, it's a sustaining part of every year re-upping and and re-energizing your commitment to the organization and the message. We have lots of projects. And so we don't want to, to solicit so much money to have such a large overhead as an organization that we can't get things done. And it's easier for us to crowdsource and kickstart use that kind of model to say we're going to do this and it's going to cost this much and we're going to get done in this time frame and if we can't do that if we can't make a really good return on investment for everyone's donations we got to find a better way to do things and so it's our challenge using the thought processes that we talk about that cities and towns and places should be using so we're trying to apply that same type of focused return on investment structure so we're going to put this out and we'll have more details of the outline that we have of The 5 We've broken it down to five phases so that we can essentially, the goal of the first phase that's been funded is to get out the minimally viable product, to get out an outline, to get out a couple of the videos, to sort of test it out, see how it works, get some feedback from people, and then do the whole thing. Do however many videos it's going to take to make it really successful. And we don't know yet. We don't know if it's 10 or 12 or 20. We need to work our way through the process. We can't sort of We can't just sort of imagine what it's going to be and and have it be the right thing. So we're going to work through it iteratively, and we want to get everyone involved along the way to keep it moving. So that's how the phases are broken up. We'll get all the information out over the next couple weeks to talk about how uh, you can be involved in, in all parts of the process.
2: I know you and I have been on the same page since the beginning that the needs out there are going to drive our funding not uh, the other way around, you know? So I kind of insisted and you didn't argue. I think you're in agreement that, you know, we're not going to be an organization that runs around and chases grants And says, you know, what can we do to make ourselves as palatable as possible to agencies that fund nonprofits? We've got a mission and we're focused on that. And this is the thing that we think is going to have the most impact. And so this is where we're putting our focus. And, you know, hopefully people out there listening will find that inspiring and find that to be consistent with what they think needs to be done as well and can find a way to help us make it happen.
0: Indeed. Then we we'll move on to the next project, and we don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. And we'll probably know when we get to the end of this one. And that's really the yeah. whole process. We have a larger strategic plan as an organization. We review that every year. I'll actually be doing that here in a couple of weeks with some of the uh, most hardcore Strong Town supporters in our board to look at where we're going. And I think kind of to put a wrap on uh, today's conversation. It's been really amazing to me having had hundreds of phone conversations now with people from all over the country who've called about curbside chats, called about great ideas that they wanted to make sure we were aware of, called about possible collaborations with us on a range of different things. There was so much out there to be unleashed that was just beyond Chuck's ability as one person to even hear about, let alone do something about. With me around, we have a little bit extra ability now to harness all of that incredible energy and intellect that's out there in order to connect all of you which I think is really the key is, is, is once we get people connected up who want to do the same things they'll be able to run with it and keep us in the loop but have more than one thing going on at a time in the, the the great number of things that we need to accomplish in order to create the tools and resources to, to, to spread the message so thanks so much for everybody who has reached out in the fall I actually have a folder in my email box called people to follow up with yeah you do I, I looked <laughs> the other day and there's like 100 people in that list that I had been stowing away since I started cleaning out. This is uh, the problem with volunteering for Strong Towns before I actually became a staff member was that the first day on the job I already had 350 messages of so a backlog of right. things, uh, <laughs> that were in my own inbox, let alone what Chuck started forwarding me over the next several days after that. I and mean, so some of those went directly into the people to follow up with and that only accelerated as we got on the road this fall. So here from me, hear from Chuck, in the coming weeks, uh, we're kind to circle back around while things are a little slower here in the, the month of January before we really get into it. But we've got a full schedule. We're going to get the calendar events up. I uh, just heard from someone just this morning uh, here in Minnesota, where we're going to be out here in a couple weeks, about a curbside chat here in the Twin Cities area. But we're, we're scheduling all the way into May, and so uh, if you want to bring chuck or one of us from strong towns out to your community hopefully you're thinking about may or june and that's where we're scheduling right now and even into the fall uh, for some larger trips so uh, please let us know if you're interested and we'd love to talk to you and find a way to get out to your neck of the woods
2: i have to say my only lament right now is that i have to go to bed sometimes because uh (laughs) i love what we're doing i'm so excited about it if i could find a way to not have to sleep so i could just do this 24 hours a day i would do that so
0: that'd be fantastic you could, you could see your children and your family and uh, your wife uh, <laughs> instead, of, instead of sleeping and then we'd really be really in good shape we uh, could all of our bases at once
2: <laughs> well I'm going to have lunch with Chloe right now so uh,
0: uh, fantastic
2: yeah alright thanks boss you take care I'll have you on the podcast again soon
0: yeah looking forward to it take all right. care, everybody
2: thanks everybody and keep doing what you can to build strong towns
1: They know that America's one big pogo right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
2: what's happening um I'm gonna need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow so if you could be here around nine that would be great okay oh oh and I almost forgot Uh, I'm also gonna need you to go ahead and come in on Sunday too
0: okay we uh, lost some people this week, and uh, we need to sort of play catch-up. Thanks.